This is Martyr She Wrote, and I'm Anna Clark Miller, a religious trauma therapist. This podcast is for survivors of religious trauma and abuse, so consider this your trigger warning. If you want to learn more or support the podcast financially, check out my new book called The Religious Trauma Survival Guide. Details are at empathyparadigm.com. Don't worry, though, you can still listen even if you haven't contributed financially. <laughs> Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. All right, martyrs, I have a really exciting treat for you today. We have a guest on the show that I have been wanting to get on here for a long time, and I'm so excited that it finally worked out. Our guest today is author Linda K. Klein. Linda, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your writing and your research, tell us about your book. Absolutely. So the book subtitle says a lot, so I'll go ahead and give it for you. So the title is Pure, but the subtitle is Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. A couple of caveats on that, you know, that shamed a generation, period, that shamed many generations, in fact, right? And how we break free. In fact, the original title that I argued for was And How We Broke Free or How We Break Free because there really is no way to do it alone. And the book tells the stories of many people, you know, as well as my own story of growing up in purity culture. So the scoop is I started my life in evangelicalism in the early 1990s. I had a powerful born again experience. I found myself, you know, attending a youth group and I eventually brought my parents along with me. My mom had been an evangelical for many years, as had my brother, but we hadn't been attending an evangelical church because my father and my sister weren't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in many ways, my mom raised me as an evangelical. You know, we had the kinds of conversations that all of a sudden, when I, as a seventh grader, had this, you know, ultra call experience, seemed already to be in my DNA, right? There were there was so much familiarity to me around this particular style of religion or spirituality that had to do with personal relationship that was very different from what I was getting in my Episcopalian and Lutheran church that we would sometimes attend. And so I remember when I first joined evangelicalism, it really was with this feeling that, you know, I had found something really, really important and it became an identity for me very, very quickly. And I would say, you know, very early on, I started to see the emergence of some other aspects of evangelicalism that I wasn't getting as clearly at home, though certainly Mm. I did get those messages at home, which included a lot of extreme gender and sexual control. I didn't really recognize it as systemic until time started to go on and until I moved from appearing like a child to appearing more and more like an adolescent. You know, suddenly I started to be accused of being a stumbling block and Mm. started to feel like there was nothing I could do to avoid being accused of being a stumbling block. If I wore the right shirt one day, I was wearing the wrong shorts the next. If I wore the right shorts the next day I was wearing, you know, the shirt went too low in the back, you know, <laughs> you know, if right. I wore, whatever it was, right. There was always something. If I was talking to the boys, it was, it was perceived as flirting. And I was told that, that that was being a stumbling block. If I, you know, all kinds of things. Right. And I started to feel more and more of a regulation of myself And to see these teachings as problematic, I think probably because I wasn't raised in purity culture, you know, I didn't grow up in that world, you know, the teachings felt problematic to me in many ways. So even as I would externally, you know, kind of rage against them in quiet ways, I would internally shame myself for not adhering to them. I'll give you an example. I went to sing. I was going to be singing. I know you're also somebody who has experienced worship band leadership, right? Oh, yeah. Definitely. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I was singing at church one Sunday, and I remember my mom saying, 
you really should change skirts before you go to church today because you're going to be on stage. And so they're mm. going to be able to see, you know, a different angle of your skirt. So it might look fine in the mirror now, but they're going to see a different angle. And I remember saying to her, you know, well, if they see my knees and are struggling, they, you know, can deal with that. <laughs> That's not mine to <laughs> right? deal with, right? And then, you know, then she said, well, actually, the reason I'm bringing this up is because some people have commented on this very issue when you've sung in the past oh, and, no. and had pulled her aside and she hadn't shared it with me before. And, you know, so that comment stuck with me, right? So even as I was able to rail against it and say, I can wear what I want. And if they're struggling with something, you know, they can figure that out on their own time, right? Mm. Though, you know, these days <laughs> I would not code it as a problematic struggle anyway. But then, you know, what came after that, this message about, you know, well, actually I've been approached by several people who have said that your skirts are a problem when you sing, you know, on stage that I internalized. Yeah. The shame. Yeah. Yeah. So even as someone who was cognitively somewhat in a different place than this world, I still internalized this shame, this anxiety, this fear of the world around me and of who and how I needed to be in order to survive within this world. So now I can tell you that all of that was this thing called purity culture, which I would define purity culture as a culture that teaches gender and sexual control and shaming often, you know, through the eyes of other people. So it's not about your own perception of yourself, but the shame of the others toward you, right, that you can internalize. And I consider the purity movement to be, you know, this movement that was born out of the white American evangelical Christian church in the early 1990s that took purity culture, which is alive and well in many cultures, though they might use different words, and yeah. really formed a heavily funded government-backed purity movement that shaped sex education for a generation of young people and had a massive impact globally on everything from HIV interventions to other sort of grassroots organizations. Yeah. I remember going through the True Love Waits program as a teen and actually facilitating that training. And it was, you know, all about pledging yourself to be sort of betrothed to Jesus until you get married. And and I just remember the looking back how saturated in purity culture and shame messages that was. Yeah. Yeah. True Love Waits would be probably the most prominent of the parachurch organizations that kind of marked the purity movement and had an incredible amount of control. Yeah. Everything from, you know, the Christian music industry that we, you know, we're only allowed to consume a certain set of music and that music was tightly controlled to the books that we were only allowed to read certain books and those books were tightly mm -hmm. controlled to the youth group around the country and in, indeed around the world, the curricula that was used in youth groups, you know, almost being verbatim in many cases, right? You know, there was a kind of sameness that resulted around the country and again to a certain extent around the world because yeah. of these parachurch groups like True Love Waits that had a lot of control over young yeah. people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Like I I would meet people who were wearing purity rings, you know, from across the world. It was it was definitely a global movement. Okay, so I loved your definition of purity culture, but for listeners who are new to this idea or who, you know, operate better with examples, do you have any examples of patterns among people that were raised in purity culture? Sure. 
so purity culture is around gender and sexual control specifically, but in order for purity culture to thrive, it really thrives best in cultures that have control in many, many areas. So one of the things that I come across, you know, among people who were raised in purity culture is that not only is there a lot of shame and anxiety and thinking about what they need to think, feel, and do, you know, according to other people in their sexual life, but often in their entire lives. You know, I am a coach and I work with people one-on-one who were raised in purity culture to help them to really deconstruct what they learned and then reconstruct a healthier relationship to themselves and to their own lives. And I often tell people that though each client has their own individual struggles and their own individual goals, my goal in working with people is to really help people to move from a sense of themselves, the world, their relationships, their bodies, their sexuality, everything about themselves and their sense of place in the world that is rooted in what others have wanted for and from them to one that's actually rooted in what they think, they feel, their body's experiences, their Mm -hmm. desires, their, you know, idiosyncrasies, right? And to really then learn how to make choices out of that place. So the reason I say that that's kind of my ethos and how I enter into the work is that I have yet to work with someone who was raised in purity culture, who didn't struggle at a fundamental level with the negation of themselves. Mm. And so whether we're talking about any number of ways that this could show up in your life, both sexually and otherwise, you know, at the end of the day, what we're talking about is returning yourself to yourself. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of the big answer. Yeah. I want to spend a second on that idea of not belonging to yourself and how damaging that is to somebody's functioning and mental health and well-being, you know, even aside from sexuality or sex or any of that. I love that that is sort of what you see as the core issue there with purity culture. So other than that lack of ownership over yourself, do you see any other patterns that emerge really frequently with the people that you coach? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, people often come to me because of how these things are showing up in their sexual life. So I can talk a little bit about that. Though one of the things I often tell clients is for most people, your sexual life has become so laced with trauma triggers that Mm. we can't start there. We actually have to start with returning yourself to yourself in other areas, which allows us time to build trust and work together, but also allows them to relax enough and to learn to own themselves enough that we can actually get into owning yourself in the sexual sphere, which tends Mm. to be a really, really difficult area to work in for a lot of people who were raised in purity culture. But You know, people come to me because, well, I mean, there are all kinds of ways. Some people were raised in purity culture and accepted the binary that they were raised with. I work mostly with women, but not exclusively. But, you know, you are either a good girl or a bad girl is a message Mm -hmm. that we get a lot in the church, a virgin or whore, right? Because In evangelicalism and purity culture, good is equated with your sexuality. If you are sexually pure, that is the highest definition of good within this culture. So some people accept that they have this binary that they have to choose between, and they choose to be the bad girl. They might Mm. leave the religion. They might stay within the religion and, you know, have secrecy but they're going to be sexual and they're going to, you know, select that option. And they think many of them that they got out of purity culture without any impacts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then over time, often if they get married, all of a sudden they look like the good girl, right? And they find themselves all of a sudden contending with the bad girl ideas that they internalized. So they might believe, well, 
you know, good girls don't get to keep a healthy, loving husband. You know, I'm a bad girl and bad girls have horrible lives. You know, this is what I learned in purity culture. If you're good, you're going to have a loving husband who will never leave you and who will never cheat on you. And Mm -hmm. you'll be his great sexual satisfier and he'll sexually satisfy you as well, though it's not as big of a priority, but a priority, (laughs) you know, and if you're a bad girl, you're going to have a dysfunctional life. You're going to have men cheat on you. You're going to have men leave you. You'll probably experience abuse. Your life will fall apart. You know, so for some people, they get into the marriage and then all of a sudden they are filled with an overwhelming fear of the consequences of having been a bad girl on their life now. Right. Yeah. Or they find all of a sudden they can't be sexual with their partner, though they have been sexual with other people before, because they say to themselves, well, now I have to adhere to the rules. And another message in purity culture is you owe your partner your sexuality. You owe it to your husband to be the great sexual satisfier. Every time he has a sexual need, you owe it to him to meet that need. However many times he wants it, you give it, right? Yeah. And if you don't give it and he cheats, then it's kind of on you. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just a straight up teaching, like not even covert, right? Yeah. But yeah, and so so they might they might find that they get into a marriage and all of a sudden they're resentful because they're the kind of person who doesn't doesn't believe in that stuff, but they still believe in it deep down enough as a rule, as a framework. So they're railing against it in their marriage and they can't be sexual with their partner because it is laced with obligation and responsibility and patriarchy and all of that stuff for them. And resentment. Yeah. Resentment. Yeah. So those are just two examples, you know, from people who might have taken a path of deciding, you know, purity culture isn't for me and then discovering later in life that it's still nonetheless has had impacts. And then there are other people who really try to be the quote unquote good girl, right? You know, I have clients who have never kissed somebody, have never even held hands with somebody who are in their late 40s, and then sort of looked around and thought to themselves, my God, right? Like I'm going to be in perimenopause any minute now. And I have been so busy being the good girl that now all of this feels inaccessible. And I'm afraid that no one will want me and and I don't even know how to enter in anymore. That's That's something that comes up a lot. I work with people who discover that they're queer at some point, you know, whether it was long ago or when they finally allowed their sexuality to turn on in their 30s or 40s or whenever it is and are contending with that. I work with a lot of sexual assault survivors, both related to church experience and not, you know, and I work with people who decide to be, try to be good girls, perfect, right? Never have a sexual thought, never have a sexual feeling, never inspire a sexual thought or feeling in anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. And then who feel that they can't live up to that expectation. They masturbate, they make out with someone, they have sex, though they tried really hard not to, you know, and and then a lot of those folks are experiencing PTSD associated with sexuality. They're getting triggers like, you know, breaking down in tears, thinking that they're pregnant, though they haven't had sex because of a fear of punishment having physical manifestations come out in their physical bodies. Like for me growing up, you know, in purity culture, I had eczema. And for me, anytime I was sexual, my eczema would be coming out and I'd be scratching until I bled. You know, so I know that this is a lot of examples, which is why I wanted to start with the big umbrella because it, it can show up in so many ways, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you were talking about that binary, good girl, bad girl, it also reminded me of the binary that we have about good boys and bad boys too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also just sort of the stereotype, at least this was my experience where I, I felt like I was taught that all men were perverts basically, Yep. you know, and, and, but it was couched like that's just their natural, that that's just how they are and they can't do anything about it. And that's why it's your job as, you know, sort of like the civilized (laughs) female 
to to monitor their sexual activity and to make sure that they don't get too tempted or they don't get too sexually frustrated. And I think that damages a lot of men as well. Absolutely. You said that most of your work is with female survivors, but have you have you spent much time talking to men and just sort of like the ways that they are impacted maybe differently than women? Yes, I have. Again, not as much, but I have. Mm-hmm. And they too, you know, experience many different kinds of manifestations. So I'll give you some examples. Some men really struggle with what they learned about women. Yeah. And they hold their wives, for example, to a purity standard and are haunted by the fact that, you know, something may have happened before the marriage, right? The woman might have slept with someone, et cetera. And they feel like something is wrong in their marriage, though they are in love and though they trust each other and respect each other and have fun and have great communication, but they feel like there is something wrong that is unfixable. And so for them, it's really deconstructing what they learned about women. For some men, it's really deconstructing what they learned about themselves because, you know, everybody in evangelicalism learns that men are essentially perverts, like you said, but even more so that they're almost monsters. So it's the woman's job to keep their inherent monstrousness from coming out of them. And men are often taught within the culture, as we all are, that all forms of sexuality are equal. So if you have a sexual thought, it is seen as the same level of sin as raping someone in many cases. For example, a lot of men share with me hearing the story of Bathsheba. Mm. Now, in the story of Bathsheba, you know, she is first just watched, right? So first what happens is lust, sexual thoughts, right? Uh And then she goes on to be essentially raped and her husband then killed to cover up the rape. Though in evangelicalism, it isn't termed as rape, it's termed as sex, but it is a (laughs) non-consensual scenario, right? Yeah. But what we learned in purity culture is that David's sin, his first sin, which is equal to all of his other sins, was the sin of watching her bathe and feeling desire for her. Yeah. So I literally have men who talk about feeling anytime they notice a woman's body that they are essentially raping the woman. Yes. You know, that they see the body and they're seeing it without the woman's consent, right? You know, they're having a sexual inclination without the woman's consent. And so they may as well be raping her. Yeah. Yeah. It's this notion that even your thoughts are as condemning as actions. And that's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's such an impossible bar for anybody to live up to, you know, to not even think of something that is wrong. And I find that it can affect people in one of two ways. They can either believe that they are monstrous and become so terrified of their monstrosity that they are overwhelmed by shame and fear and guilt and sort of shutting themselves down. Mm -hmm. Or some people can use it as an excuse to behave monstrously, like, all sexual expression is the same. You know, she wore this, so I did that, right? It's all the same anyway, right? Mm -hmm. And there is that, you know, that term sin leveling, the purity culture sin levels in a way that creates the conditions for all kinds of sexual misbehavior and even sexual illegalities to arise because of the sin leveling of the culture. Yeah, Mm, that is, it's a lot of truth right there. And it's stuff that I hear so frequently from my male and female clients. So you mentioned earlier, a lot of these folks will have trauma responses during sex. And and I fully agree, but I'm wondering if that means that you consider surviving purity culture to be a form of trauma. Yeah, I, I know that the language of capital T and lowercase t can be controversial because it creates a kind of inherent hierarchy. But you know, with that caveat having been named, I find it useful in that 
you know, I think of a capital T trauma as a time-bound trauma where you can sort of point to a beginning and point to an end, you know, and that's where sexual assault would fit in, right? Mm-hmm. War experiences, et cetera. But, you know, those traumas are, I would say, not necessarily greater than the adding up of lowercase t traumas that can happen over time. And they are often deeply, deeply tied to one another. So within purity culture, if you are, for example, a survivor and you've experienced that capital T trauma, you will then have that immediately connected to the lowercase t traumas of purity culture by almost inevitably blaming yourself being blamed by others if you come out and explain what happened, you know, the silence, the inherent silence that that happens, you know, when people feel shame around trauma, that has its own traumatizing effect. Hearing the stories of other people who are survivors being described as, well, why didn't she, you know, can be traumatizing. You know, mm-hmm. it's there's so many lowercase t traumas that are all throughout purity culture that I would say that it is inherently traumatizing with a lowercase t, to be sure. And also, if you have capital T traumas, it can make them so much more difficult to deal with. I know somebody who is a therapist who works with uh, sexual assault survivors, Mm -hmm. who often says that sometimes the actual experience of the assault can be easier to deal with than the experience of all the suffering that happens around it because it's difficult to name a beginning and an end. It's difficult to really zero in on it and to deal with the reality of your parents blaming you, your parents not believing you, your parents cutting you off, whatever results from this world. And so, you know, I'm not trying to say that lowercase t traumas are more extreme than capital T by any means. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying that you know, this is a world where both of those exist and where they're so laced up in one another. And many people, you know, have had so many lowercase t traumas that add up over time without having had a capital T trauma that if you were to look at their lives, they are indistinguishable from a capital T trauma survivor. Yeah. You know, if you look at the sexual life of somebody who grew up in purity culture, who grew up really internalizing it, really believing it deeply, giving themselves to it fully, often the way in which they show up in their sexual sphere looks like a survivor, which is one of the reasons that we need therapists like you who are doing religious trauma work, Mm. because so often what I find happens is that therapists and perhaps especially sex therapists, don't always understand the inherent trauma of purity culture. And the fact that people who grew up in this culture should all be treated like survivors Mm -hmm. with the level of care, with the level of attention to the pace. Yeah. The sensitivity. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I like your distinction between, you know, capital T trauma, meaning like a singular event versus lowercase trauma, which more and more lately, I'm hearing the language of complex trauma Mm -hmm. to describe like a series of events that when it's cumulative, that creates the same trauma responses as somebody who has a single, obviously dramatic event, you know, like a car accident or, you know, a rape. I do think that a lot of purity culture survivors that I've worked with, one of the tricky things that they have to navigate is just the sheer number of triggers mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are are baked in because there's so many different purity culture teachings mm-hmm. that can be swirling around in your head, you know, just like you were saying earlier about what you wear. I know a lot of women who obsess about what they're wearing in the morning and that evokes a trauma response of sorts, not in all of them, but in in many of them. And that's because they remember being told over and over and over by lots of different people and in lots of different ways that there could be 
spiritual and major life consequences to them wearing the wrong thing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Mm. one of the things about trauma in terms of its definition that people often refer to is, you know, singular events experienced by the body as life-threatening. And the thing about purity culture is it's based on a binary. If you are in, you are good, you are safe, you are holy, you are part of this community, you are part of your family, you have access to God, you have access to eternal life, a good eternal life, you are going to have a healthy life and be able to get through any hard times that should befall you. The community will come around Mm -hmm. you, they'll support you. That's the in, that's the good. And, you know, in order to get all of that, you follow all the rules, including dressing. And the alternative is that you will be out. And literally, we can think about it as like being expelled into the wilderness. You're in a world that is not saved, a world that is not safe, a world that is out to get you whether they know it or not, a world of dysfunction, a world of instability, a world where you will end your life going to hell, where you will be punished forever. And again, you end up on the bad side by doing things as small as wearing the wrong thing. So there is kind of this feeling of life-threatening that is laced through much of the world that purity culture survivors experience. Yeah, the stakes are so high that it feels the same as a life and death situation. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. So what specific messages about sex or sexuality would you say connect to purity culture? Like, you know, the idea that you need to remain a virgin until you get married would be an obvious one. But are there other messages about sex that are tied up in that? Well, that's the sort of clear line for pre-marriage. One of the things that I think is so difficult about growing up in purity culture is that what's supposed to happen before marriage, and to be clear, I mean a heterosexual cisgender marriage, of course. Right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but what is supposed to happen before marriage differs according to who you talk to. There are some mm. people who grow up in purity culture who might believe that as long as you don't have sex, you're okay. And other people who believe that if you have buttons on your pants instead of a zipper, you know, you're pointing men to your vagina and that is enough to make you a stumbling block and to make you sexually impure. Yep. So you might be safe in one moment and pulled aside for something that never even occurred to you could be unsafe in another, (laughs) right? Right. And so I think that, you know, in order to feel like they're going to be above reproach, some people end up playing the hard line, which is to shut off all sexual thought, all sexual feeling or inclination, Mm. certainly no sexual actions, including something like masturbation, and to not even touch someone of the opposite sex, again, a heteronormative world until marriage, and to not even have too much of a close, intimate friendship with somebody of the opposite sex until marriage. Because as I kept dating goodbye, told us that you'd be essentially cheating on your future partner if you have too close of an intimate friendship, right? Right. And so I think that that's, that's where sort of the insecurity comes up. Somebody has a thought and they think, did this just make me bad? Wait, yeah. wait a minute. Maybe it's okay to have a thought as long as I don't act on it. Oh, but all sin is equal, you know? And so it, it makes you hypervigilant around your selfhood, right? You're constantly assessing yourself and constantly assessing others, like whether you went too far, whether they could read your thought, whether you need to confess it. Then after marriage, the expectations abruptly change and you're suddenly expected, not allowed, expected to be extremely sexual. In fact, that is the promise. You know, if you did everything right, then you will have a sexy, red hot marriage, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you probably you didn't do everything right before. 
or you're not doing everything right now. Yeah. And you're actually expected to please the other person for sure. Never leave the other person wanting, especially we're talking about women pleasing men, but you're also expected to be enjoying it. <laughs> you're, right. You're, yeah. Be sincere. Love it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and be physically capable of it. And a lot of folks find coming out of purity culture that they actually are not physically capable. They experienced, you know, vaginismus and they're not able to literally experience insertion. Or if they are, it is with unbearable pain. And, you know, very often if folks can have sex, it comes with a whole lot of other stuff. One of the most common things is to dissociate or disconnect. You're there, but you're not there. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty hard to experience the pleasure you're supposed to be experiencing if it's so taboo that you can't even be in your body in, in shame and anxiety and fear and paranoia and all of the things. So it is a very, very difficult world to navigate because the expectations do not align. And yet we're taught that they do. You know, we're taught that A leads to B. And in reality, it's just not how life works and not how our body works. It's not how, it's just not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely have, have encountered that both, you know, in my personal life and with many of my clients, just that adjusting to married life or, you know, being in a committed relationship. It's like, okay, wait, the rules have just drastically changed. Sex is no yeah. longer a bad thing. It's a good thing. I mean, of course, it still has lots and lots and lots of rules, but I'm supposed to be good at it and enjoy it. And otherwise, you know, maybe I'm not committed enough to the relationship and maybe that's the problem, you know, and maybe it's not the right relationship. Maybe I heard God wrong or maybe I'm not accepting God's will, you know, and God's leadership or maybe I, you know, let him go too far before marriage. And so I ruined my sexuality. Exactly. Because, because surely A leads to Z, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what we were told. So that can't be the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So something else must be wrong and it's probably my fault. It's definitely a very one size fits all, but it's a size that doesn't actually fit anybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the most successful quote unquote, purity culture survivors, people who are like purity culture worked mm -hmm. for me. You know, if you really get them to tell the truth, which is, it's hard to get people who are pro purity culture to talk about sexuality in any meaningful way, you know, but they'll still admit that it, it took time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You have been um, careful to mention a couple of times, which I really appreciate that a lot of what we're talking about is in the context of assumed heterosexual monogamous marriage. Mm -hmm. Where do you think purity culture leaves queer people? Out, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, the world that I grew up in, the purity culture that I grew up in would not even acknowledge the existence of queerness of any kind. And would say that even naming, even using the word gay was like, oh, that accepts that there is such a thing as being gay. It validates it. So it was so unmentionable, right, that we weren't even, you know, supposed to be using a, a, a word, right? Yeah. And so that is a double erasure and a double isolation. Not only might you have sexual attraction if you're able to access it within that culture, but it's the wrong kind of sexual attraction. Not only are you not the stereotypical expectation for a man and a woman, which by the way, the gender binary, you know, gender expectations are a core element of purity culture, right? So you have yes. to be a very specific type of man and a very specific type of woman in these highly stereotypical ways. And so maybe you not only aren't the right type of your gender, but you don't align with your gender at all. Doubly isolating, unspeakable so taboo that we can't even name it. Yeah. So one thing that I have experienced a lot with people I work with, you know, what ends up happening is that they actually 
don't realize that they're queer. Yeah. They find that purity culture is such a threatening place to come out even to themselves that they will just align with purity culture's rules and not touch it. And also it can be a way for them to survive within a larger world that is hostile to queerness, right? Yeah. It might be unsafe for them to come out at their school, in their household, again, to themselves. So, you know, purity culture becomes a cloak. You know, I'm just pure, right? I'm just following these rules. I just, I'm I'm not sexual right now because I am a Christian. And what I have seen a lot is that it isn't until people are out of purity culture that they allow themselves to access their sexuality at all. And they suddenly are like, what? Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and then there's a whole new chapter of self-discovery and self-acceptance that needs to happen in negotiation about whether your world will come with you or not. Yeah. But those who do know, I think, growing up in purity culture, experience a deep level of shame, though I've heard some folks say that the shame around being sexual was worse for them than the shame around being sexual with someone of the same gender. And Mm. and then for others, it feels like the same genderness, you know, just makes them feel like their sexuality is worse than everyone else's sexuality. So it it really is individual, Mm -hmm. of course, but, you know, these are complex systems in which there are some messages that are stated outright, like do not be sexual. And then there are other messages that are communicated via silence or communicated via example or communicated via how other people are talked about or treated, et cetera. You know, how each person internalizes it can look really different person by person. Yeah. A memory just came back to me of when I think I was in high school um, and, you know, definitely had not grappled with my own sexuality, but I remember hearing people talk about gay marriage. And I remember thinking like, wait, aren't we setting gay people up to go to hell if we tell them that the only way that they can have God ordained sex is in marriage, but then we won't let them get married. Like, <laughs> it's like entrapment, you know, <laughs> like, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But that is kind of what it feels like, you know, as a queer person in purity culture, because it's sort of like, not only are you messed up, but there is nothing that you can do to mm. become good enough. And mm. so you're just doomed, you know, and I think that that binary good bad really comes in at that point where it's like, maybe I just shouldn't care about my own sexual safety because I've been told that I am just fundamentally bad and there's nothing that's going to change that. Yep. Something that I'm curious if you have encountered is people who are deconstructing purity culture and are questioning their relationships and wondering like, do I need to do I need to leave in order to know if this is really what I want? Hmm. Like meaning like, should I have played the field? Is that (laughs) right? Yeah. Like, like, will I really know who I am sexually until I've gone and yeah, played the field? Yeah, I do hear some of that. Yeah. And I do think that there are some people who, you know, get into a marriage and, and their sexuality emerges and then find that that their sexuality is not in alignment with their partners. Hmm. And that's something that I do hear people sort of being like, well, gosh, if we had allowed our sexuality to emerge, you know, maybe we wouldn't have to be sitting with this tension of wanting very different things. Yeah. So I hear some of that kind of more like knowing my sexuality before I made a partner choice, right? And I do also hear a number of people who kind of want to blow up, like they have fantasies about blowing up their lives a lot. Yeah, escapism. 
Yeah, escapism. Yeah. And my sense is that often it's not even about their life being bad. It's it's that their life wasn't built for their authentic self. And so they feel like in order for me to be my authentic self, I have to like daydream about blowing that life up, right? Mm-hmm. And creating a life where I could be my authentic self. Though I think for many of them, they could be their authentic selves within this construct, but it's hard for them to imagine that. Yeah. Or or trust that their partner would want to give them the freedom to really question those things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I think there are, you know, many who are in loving relationships who are working through it, you know, and feel good about their partner and good about their choice, but need to do the deep work together. But I do see a lot of people who grieve the loss of the years before they deconstructed. That's very, very common. So it's not necessarily that they are questioning their choice of partner now as much as that they really wish that their life before this had been their own. Yeah. And, And many people, the part of the grieving is... I I could have been with other people, understood other people, understood myself better, right? But it but it's so much else. You know, there is this real sense of anger and grief among a lot of people when they discover how good it feels to mm. be yourself and reflect back on how bad it felt not to. And on how many years they lived in that feeling bad. So I do find that there is a longing for a different history that comes up a lot that includes sexuality, but is larger than it. Yeah. I love that distinction that sometimes the grief is not about the relationship that you're in, but it's that grief for just the loss of autonomy and choice that happened as a result of being in that system. Yeah. And, and then of course there are people who, you know, are in relationships that don't work and they deconstruct and they find that their partner is not going to go with them. And, you know, and then, then it's a very different conversation. There, there is hope in all of these scenarios because once we start to, look at what's happening, we can move closer and closer to ourselves. And one of the things I often tell clients is, you know, deconstruction can be really, really painful and you are dismantling your inner life, you know, which often includes dismantling aspects of your outer life. And it is painful. It hurts. Yeah. And therefore I always work on deconstruction and reconstruction simultaneously. Reconstruction, helping you connect to your feelings, helping people connect to their bodies, helping people to have a a sense of what it feels like to stand up for their instincts once they've learned to access their instincts, you know, et cetera, because that feels really good. Mm -hmm. And you almost like need to be experiencing how good the other side feels in order to be able to do the work to pull apart the old world and it feels bad to pull it apart. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you're right that the fear can be so overwhelming. And if you haven't experienced the rewards of pushing through that, then it's hard to motivate yourself to want to even challenge the system that you're in. Totally. Mm. If say a listener is recognizing that they definitely have experienced the impacts of purity culture, what advice would you give to somebody just getting started on their journey of healing? I think my first piece of advice is to be patient with yourself. You know, purity culture Mm -hmm. would teach us that we have to become better yesterday, that we have to become perfect yesterday even. And I find that oftentimes when people begin to deconstruct, there is like a race to the end. You know, I have to fully heal. I have to fully repair. I have to fully own myself. I have to, you know, do it all yesterday. 
And I know that there are plenty of people who are listening you know, to this, who probably are in that scenario, because my clients who are in that scenario are listening to podcasts all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> they're like, they're like, my full-time job is listening to podcasts about purity culture, right? But, um, you know, so be patient with yourself because the risk about moving so fast is, is that we'll get it cognitively, but the rest of us won't be with it. Mm. And so be patient, you know, this, this takes time. It takes time to rewrite your life. It takes time to contend with learning how to sit in the discomfort, learning how to, to hold complexity instead of binaries, learning how to challenge the foundations of the teachings that we haven't even identified as foundations yet this takes time and that's okay. And actually taking time is a good thing because it allows all of us, it gives us a better shot of all of us moving forward together, right? You know, doing embodiment work, doing work related to certainly the cognitive piece, but not in isolation, you know, allowing your life to begin to respond to some of the things you're learning and then learning more and letting your life respond more and integrating it into your body and learning more and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where you are is good is I think what I would say. Mm, Yeah. I love that piece of advice because that is so frequently a challenge that I have noticed among my clients that once they start down that, you know, snowball of deconstruction, that it just feels like this momentum that can't be resisted, that can't be slowed down. And it almost feels like, you know, driving yourself towards a panic attack because there's just so many things changing, so many foundations of what you believe and what you think are being, you know, opened up and examined. And it is so nice to be given the permission to slow down and to take it one step at a time. And it's, you know, this is a new way we're learning to be in relationship with self. And I find that that sense of urgency, that Mm -hmm. anxiety tied to the sense of urgency, we find a lot of that in evangelicalism. Yes. You know, and what does it look like to be in a relationship with yourself and where you're at and where you're going that doesn't have that self-battery or why am I not further or that anxiety, that sense of urgency, right? You know, like there's something about slowing down that also is about learning a new way of being, you know, what happens when we pause and really listen to our body and see what's happening, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any other advice that you would give to begin this journey? It's not a piece of advice, but one of the things I often say is just that you're not alone. Mm. And I know that hearing this podcast and hearing all these examples, you know, people are, you know, have a sense of that, but I think it's important to say it outright, like anyone who's listening you know, whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. You know, even if what you're experiencing wasn't named per se, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many manifestations of this and you're not broken. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and there are others who are healing just like you. Yes, I completely Agree. And that's 100% the purpose and the message of this entire podcast is that, you know, you may have been told in your religious group that isolation and exclusion and mistreatment was the only thing you could expect on the other side. Mm. But that isn't the case. You know, there is community and there is empathy on the other side. And I, I just think it's so important to have these conversations that let people know, like, you're not just going to find hell if you step yeah. out of the box that you've been in. Yeah. Yeah. Linda, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. It's, it's so 
encouraging to speak to another person who clearly has the same passion for helping people recover than I do. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I feel like you and I could have many more long conversations. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure we could. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I typically try to, you know, end our episodes on a lighter note. And so I always ask our guests if they have any lighthearted stories about experiences in church culture. Is there anything that comes to mind? (laughs) You know, you mentioned that you were going to ask this question. And I was thinking to myself, man, I, I just do not tell the funny stories anymore. Like I've been doing this work so long, right. you know, that, that um, it's hard for me to access. And, but, you know, of course there's so much, I, but the thought that came to my mind, I don't know if it's, if anyone is going to resonate with it, but the thought that came to my mind was I was thinking about, I had a crush on a, a youth group boy when Mm -hmm. I was in youth group Mm -hmm. and the whole, I didn't even know him, but the whole reason I had a crush on him was because he also acted. And in youth group, there were just so few people who were like me, you know, that I was like, he acts, I acts, we become missionaries. We start a missionary theater troupe. (laughs) We travel around the world. We're acting, Uh we're saving lives, right? We're saving souls. We're using theater for Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so I asked him, he was at a different high school, he went to a public high school, and they were going to have a a, a Sadie Hawkins dance where the girls asked the boys, Mm -hmm. and the two high schools were going to come together for the dance. I asked him to the dance. And, you know, at my high school, I think I was a lot more myself, right? Like I was in theater, I was in choirs, I was like, you know, like a more gregarious you know, version of myself. And anyway, so, so, you know, now we were in my world, right? Yes. <laughs> like, you know, we're at the dance, we we're in my world. Mm-hmm. And, oh, there's so many things I could tell you about this dance. All right. But I'll tell you this. So I, you know, so many things that in retrospect, this guy's mind must've been just blown. But um, I remember at one time we were dancing, I took his tie and I put it over my shoulder and I was guiding him along with the tie. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, sexy. (laughs) Well, I didn't actually think I was sexy. Like I saw it as like silly theatery play. Playful. Playful theatery Uh silliness, right? I was, I was so not like, like I didn't code any of these things as sexual, (laughs) but that guy's mind must have been blown like what happened like oh. the youth group girl she's taking my tie she's dragging me around the dance floor with my tie and um, yeah no I love it I love it <laughs> and I can only imagine what he was thinking this whole time like yeah. how he must have been like what is happening what is expected yeah. of like, me here what is who is this Delilah man? exactly exactly yeah <laughs> and then you know I eventually drove my date home and oh. I just remember you know, he sat in the car for like an hour and a half and he wouldn't get out. And he's being like, what's, oh. what's going on? Why won't this guy get out of the car? You know, like I, I'm from purity culture. I'm not expecting any kind of kiss or anything like that. Like time to get out of the car. Right. Date's over. And he just would not leave. And I think in retrospect, he must have seen all of that and thought that I was uh, communicating some kind of. <laughs> you were sending signals. signals. Oh. That poor guy, you know, purity culture all over him. You know, he couldn't kiss me, you know, and I just, I didn't, I didn't get it. Like I was so in that world that it was always mystifying to me that everyone coded me as sexually, you know. Yeah. But, but also totally innocent, you totally know, like, innocently wrong with any of that stuff. Yes. So all these like confused people, because here I was yes. in a purity culture world where I just did not understand what I was doing. Yes. Uh-huh. Anyway. Yeah. So that explains a little bit about why I think I experienced enough of purity culture internalized to really understand what people are experiencing and to have experienced a lot of, a lot of PTSD myself afterward. And I always had like a foot out, right. A foot out that said like, this is ridiculous. This is messed up. This is messed up. And I can drag a guy around by my tire or or whatever, because it's fine. Right. Because, you know, we're all making too much drama about this. Wow. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for for sharing and for, you know, being here and for doing the work that you do. 
if listeners would like to find you and potentially are interested in coaching, what website should they go to? So my website is my full name. So it's just www.lindakklein.com. But my middle name is spelled out. So L-I-N-D-A-K-A-Y-K-L-E-I-N. Awesome. Thank you, Linda. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you being here. You have a great day. Yeah, thank you. You too. It was really wonderful talking with you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Shoot me an email at Anna at empathyparadigm.com. Bye.